Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on March 17th, 2011. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast... They can't imagine a world where we have 7 billion people, uh, that large numbers of those people, increasing numbers of those people want to eat meat, uh, and you're growing it the way we're growing it now. That's Jeffrey Bartholet. He's a contributing editor at Newsweek, and he's the author of a story in our upcoming June issue called Inside the Meat Lab about the quest to grow edible meat without also growing all those other things like legs and brains and faces that go along with raising livestock. Bartholet has served as Newsweek's Washington bureau chief and its foreign editor, among other positions. I spoke to him by phone. Let's begin with this Willem Van Elen fellow. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about him? Yeah, I mean, he's a very uh, interesting, somewhat eccentric character who... Uh, grew up in what is currently Indonesia. At the time, it was a Dutch colony. He's 87 years old now. He spent uh, time, uh, you know, some years in Japanese uh, prisoner of war camps in Indonesia where he was starved. Um, and that began a kind of lo- lifelong obsession with food, nutrition, survival, and so on. Uh, when the war finished, he went back. He went to Holland. Uh, he studied at the University of Amsterdam and met there uh, a professor who had grown a bit of uh, skeletal muscle in in the laboratory. And at that point, he uh, started to think about, you know, uh, the idea of being able to grow meat from stem cells or from cells, be able to grow meat in a lab as opposed to, you know, raising animals on a farm somewhere to be able to have a lab and grow meat anywhere, to, you know, regardless of the environmental conditions or um, other factors. Um, and this became a, became a kind of obsession with him for, for many decades. He eventually uh, wrote up some uh, proposals for in vitro meat production he uh, plowed his money into patents. He got a, uh, you know, some European patents, a couple of American patents eventually, and uh, was part of a group uh, that got money from the Dutch government in 2005, I think it was, two million euros to explore the idea of being able to grow um, in vitro meat uh, and to produce meat, you know, outside of the animal. Um, and um, you know, he was kind of the inspiration for that uh, for that project. You have a, a really amazing quote from Winston Churchill, of all people, from yeah. ni- from 1932. So people have clearly been thinking about this for a while. Fifty years hence, we shall escape the absurdity of growing a whole chicken in order to eat the breast or wing by growing these parts separately under suitable medium. So that's Winston Churchill in 1932. Right, there was there was there was a lot of um, interest in this uh, back in though in that era, uh, but it didn't really lead to anything. Nobody really pursued it. Nobody was really thinking about trying to do anything on any kind of commercial scale. It was more sort of it became uh, it was more in the domain of science fiction and movies and that sort of thing. Right. Um, but you know, Van Elen had this obsession. He kept on thinking about it. You know, uh, you know, he's he's an eccentric character. He, he's had a lot of jobs in his in his career, everything from selling newspapers to uh, owning cafes and art galleries and so on. But he, he just sort of kept at this. Um, and um, and now there's actually quite a lot of interest uh, 
in doing this because, you know, the conditions have changed a lot. I mean, the conditions are much more suitable now, not just in terms of this, you know, the scientific knowledge we have these days and can apply to it, but also the environmental conditions. I mean, one of the, the, the real reasons that people feel compelled, uh, to, to, the scientists involved feel compelled to do the research in this area is because, you know, something like 18% of uh, greenhouse gases uh, that are produced uh, come from the livestock industry. Um, and meanwhile, you know, the population of the planet is growing. It's now, I think it was 2 billion back in 1940. Now it's 7 billion. And, uh, then the number of people who are eating meat is growing by leaps and bounds. It's expected to double, I believe, roughly by 2050. And another, uh, another factor you mentioned in the article is 30% of the land on the earth that isn't covered with ice is used for grazing livestock and growing animal feed. So that's a lot of land that could theoretically be freed up to, as you say in the article, for example, uh, growing forests that could then pull carbon out of the atmosphere. Well, right. I mean, they, you know, the people that are in- involved in this, you know, imagine a future where, you know, you can, uh, you know, take some stem cells uh, from uh, uh, from a farm animal, uh, grow them, uh, produce meat. You could do it, and you know, some people even mentioned to me the idea of having little urban meat labs. You know, you could have them, uh, you know, locally. So you wouldn't also the shipping costs and all, not just cost, but the, the, the environmental cost of shipping stuff all around the globe uh, also would potentially be reduced. Um, so they see this as, you know, uh, something that's, you know, that, that's, that's necessary. Um, I mean, they, they can't imagine a world where we have 7 billion people, uh, that large numbers of those people, increasing numbers of those people want to eat meat, uh, and you're growing it the way we're growing it now. If, if 30% of the ice-free land is used to grow animals now, uh, imagine if, you know, uh, you need double the, the not double the production of meat to to to, um, to meet the demand. Um, you know how much land then would you need to use, or what kind of factory farming methods would be produced? You know would, would evolve in order to produce those kinds of uh, quantities of meat. So they see this as an imperative. You know you just we're going to have to come up with some kind of scientific solution, and uh, they see this as it, and they uh, wish they'd get more money or more funding to be able to pursue it. So why don't we go over what some of the roadblocks are that have kept this from becoming a reality to this date? Yeah, there are challenges, as they would put it, at every stage of the process. Uh, you know, ideally, you'd be able to take uh, embryonic stem cells or adult stem cells and grow them. You know, I mean, ideally, they just double and redouble uh, infinitely uh, in the case of uh, embryonic stem cells. And so, you know, again, I theoretically, you could take, uh, you know, one stem cell line and create tens of thousands of tons of food. You could feed the world. Uh, on the other hand, the, the problem is, uh, you know, with embryonic stem cells, you know, we, they haven't been able to get stem cell lines from livestock animals that can that can proliferate in that way without just sort of veering off in their own direction and turning into, instead of muscle, turning into brain tissue or bone tissue or something else. And with adult stem cells, they don't have the same capacity of self-renewal to, to double and redouble infinitely. 
So, you know, they're working on that. That's one problem. The other problem, uh, or one of the other problems, uh, challenges, is uh, medium that you would grow this, this stuff in, um, grow this, uh, the cells in, uh, is very expensive now. Uh, the, the best media uh, available is made from fetal calf serum or horse serum, and, you know, that's sort of a non-starter. Uh, in order to produce a pound of meat, you know, uh, at this stage using that kind of media, it would be like $50,000 a pound, I think. Um, so again, they have to come up with some kind of media that, uh, that is much cheaper. Um, and then they have to figure out ways to bulk up the muscle cells. They're just, there are challenges at every step of the process and they are working on all of those. They don't, you know, the people that are involved in this don't see them in any way as insurmountable. Some have said to me that it's not really a scientific challenge as much as it's a technical challenge, but they're not they're not anywhere near you know they're not there yet and they're not going to be there soon. Let's talk about uh, bulking up because you know when you when you're trying to make meat out in the real world, I mean if you're trying to make meat if you're trying to grow your own muscles, you exercise you you can you can run you can lift weights. But if you have this pile of cells in a Petri dish, you know, how do you get that pile of cells to grow as if it were somehow getting exercise? Yeah, it's, uh, they're, you know, they have ways that they're, you know, theoretically, uh, you, you can use uh, electrical stimuli, um, but that only tends to bulk them up by about 10%, which isn't sufficient, and it's also expensive. I mean, if you're using electricity to try and bulk these things up, that sort of defeats the purpose of, uh, of, of reducing greenhouse gases. You know, just by creating um, tension points, or, you know, so the, the, uh, the, the cells have to sort of uh, grab onto something, you know, that you know, leads to a certain level of, uh, of bulking up. Um, the most promising possible uh, means is to use uh, micro pulses of chemicals uh, that this is the way the body does it, essentially. And these little tiny micro pulses of chemicals that, uh, that, that serve to bulk up the muscle. Um, but, you know, they haven't, you know, they haven't gotten anywhere near being able to do that. And they also have to create a kind of, something that's more three-dimensional i mean right now they can they can uh, create very thin layers of uh, muscle tissue you know a few layers thick or something but beyond that you need a three-dimensional kind of a structure that provides nutrients uh, in and out and uh, removes waste keeps the cells alive essentially um, so they're you know they also have to figure out how to do that you know there are parts of the article that not only sound like science fiction but sound like kind of Woody Allen science fiction, like like Sleeper. Uh, this sentence jumped out at me. By that time, an American scientist had already succeeded in growing a piece of fish fillet in a lab. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it, I'm, you know I, I, it's funny, and to some people, you know, somewhere else in the article, I talk about the, 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 the ick factor or the yuck factor. I mean, there's some people who care about the planet and so forth, whose initial response is, you know, no way, yick, you know, uh, that's, uh, it sounds scary, you know, um, and uh, there are people now that are working on that aspect, because, I mean, one of the concerns is how do you make this commercially viable? I mean, it's, you know, it's one thing to, you know, just to, to come to develop the science to the point where you can produce this stuff, 
and, and, the, and then the second stage is if you can get there and you can produce this meat in some kind of commercially viable form, in other words, relatively cheaply, you know, then how, you know, can you sell it? You know, will people buy this stuff? Will they go to the store and buy, you know, in vitro meat? Um, and uh, so I was saying, you know, a lot of people go, yuck, you know, it sounds scary. It's a little bit, you know, uh, people tend to identify it with genetically modified foods. And again, it's, it, there's no genetic modification that goes on in this process. So they they identify it with things that are, are scary because they don't understand it. Um but somebody now in, in Holland has gotten funding and they're doing a, a study on that. You know, I mean, what is the, 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 the market? Uh, you know, how will the market respond to this? Uh, what would need to be done in order to market it, uh, market the product uh, in a way that, um, you know, where people would actually be enticed to buy it? Um, you know, some people imagine a day in which you'll buy uh, cruelty-free meat. It'll be, you know, they'll come up with some remarketing uh, campaigns that uh, that make it, I don't know about more appetizing, but more appealing. This meat, you know, I mean, one of the benefits of it is that, you know, no animals get killed. Uh, you know, you're taking stem cells out and then you're producing the meat. You're not slaughtering anything. So uh, people for the ethical treatment of animals have, uh, have supported this uh, this research. You know, there's, you also raise a possibility, which you don't go into in the article, but, um, if you were a fan of particularly exotic food, for example, elephant steaks. Right. You, you know, elephant steaks could theoretically be really easy to get, as easy as, as beef is today. Uh, exactly. But you wouldn't kill any elephants to get it. Right. Uh, elephant steaks, tiger steaks, lion steaks, you know, you name it, you could do it. Uh, Theoretically. And, you know, I got the impression from the article that you may think that, let's say, 20 years from now, the economic forces and the environmental issues will have reached a point where a lot of the barriers in terms of just putting in the work and the money to do this have been overcome because it becomes an imperative. Uh, potentially. I mean, that's what the scientists involved certainly think. Uh, uh, one of them said, you know, I don't see any other way. You know, I don't see how we can uh, uh, sustain the planet and remain uh, meat eaters unless we uh, make, you know, find a way to make this work. So uh, now they obviously the scientists are, have something, you know, they have an interest here. They want to get money. They want to get funding and they, they feel they haven't gotten enough. But um uh, you know, the way, you know, again, you look at the, just the basic trend lines, population increasing, number of people eating meat increasing, a doubling of the number of people who are eating meat by 2050, and yet we're already with the meat that we're producing now, that's 18% of the greenhouse gases that we're producing. It's more than the total tra global transportation sector that is produced by the livestock industry. So, you know, how, how is that sustainable? That's what these people, you know, will ask you. How is that sustainable? It's not. Um, there's got to be a different way, and uh, and they say this is it. You know, and, and as for the yuck factor, the ick factor, if people will eat a lobster, I think they'll eat anything. <laughs> you would think so. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of other things that people eat all over the world. Uh and, you know, what, what these folks say, again, is if the people that are buying meat out there in the world had any idea of the way in which meat is produced, if they had a look at, 
you know, inside a factory farm where animals are raised in their own uh, feces and, you know, slaughtered and, you know, and then uh, and then ground up, you know, and so on. Uh, you know, actually, this process that they're proposing is sterile, potentially has n- none of the, you know, disease risks that uh, factory farms have. Uh, and you could produce meat that is actually designer meat, potentially, you know, you know, the level of fat, the level of this taste or that taste or this element or that element would all could all be, you know, um, factored into the uh, engineering of the meat. Again, we're a long way from that. This is something that people are are thinking about uh, and that is theoretically possible. Uh, but right now they still just have to figure out how to produce meat and, and, um, and then how to produce something that not is only is muscle tissue, which is what meat is, but uh, has, you know, the, the similar taste and texture and all of that. The article is Inside the Meat Lab, and we've been talking to Jeffrey Bartholet. That's in the June Scientific American. Thanks very much. Thank you. There is a young cowboy lives on the range. His horse and his cattle, there is only... Bartholet's article on the Meat Lab, not to be confused with the Meat Mathematics Institute, which only exists on Burger King commercials, is available now on our website. That June issue hits the stands in a few days, but the May issue is still out. I spoke to Editor-in-Chief Maria Di Cristina about the cover article and her accompanying editorial. Tell me about your editorial in the current issue of Scientific American. We're talking about energy technologies. And, you know, this is not unusual for Scientific American. We're always talking about energy technologies. But what's different about these energy technologies is we use the word radical. We did seven radical energy technologies. And what do I mean by that? Well, radical in this case are things that are potentially very useful and very helpful in various arenas of the big energy challenge, I'm going to say the global energy challenge that we're all facing. But they also have a high risk of failure. And that makes them very interesting. And part of what I think might be a rational portfolio of different kinds of approaches you take to solving the energy problem. Now, we have enormous energy needs as a country and as a globe, and we have enormous problems associated with those energy needs, climate not the least of them, how you get that energy, you know, the environmental impacts of um, acquiring the fuel or digging the hydrocarbons. And what's, what's interesting about these technologies is they all are ways to create greater efficiency in one way or another. And any well-balanced portfolio will have a small amount of high-risk but potentially high-payoff parts to it. Correct. I mean, we also uh, spoke with a great, um, very interesting investor and um, an advisor for Scientific American named Vinay Kosla a couple of months ago. And that interview was sort of inspiring, at least for, for me. Vinay Kosla said that, he really only wanted to invest in high-risk, big ideas because they were the only way that you were going to get beyond an incremental advance of mm-hmm. some kind. And, you know, while I, I don't know enough about it personally to say that that's the only thing I would invest in, I think what you're saying is exactly right, that any, any portfolio of approaches, you want to have the sort of, we'll call them the penny stocks, right? The tried and true, but they'll give you a little bit back. You invest a little and you get a little back and that creates a kind of a steady state of functionality for, for energy systems. And you want to invest in some things where 
the payoff could be great if only it worked. And so the seven technologies that we talk about in this, the cover story of this issue have a high risk of failure. But if they worked, it would be spectacular. One of them that springs to mind is memory technologies for different metals and different materials. And what's interesting about them is, is they remember a position they've been in in the past. So if you flex them, they'll return to that position. And that gives you a great opportunity to improve efficiency. And they could be used throughout an automotive engine to take advantage of vibration. So waste vibration could then be used to make additional energy in effect. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com, where right on the homepage you can check out Scientific American's latest missives to Twitter and Facebook, as well as the latest science news. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank you.